Good morning, ABC. Good to see you. Thanks, Maddox. I always feel so loved and welcome whenever Maddox is in a room. It's awesome. Thank you, Ru. Um, I'm doing something that I normally um, really try to avoid doing, and that is use technology uh, while I'm public speaking. So we'll see if this works. If it doesn't, at least I've got my notes in front of me, and that'll work. Oh, there you go. Okay. Um, so before we start anything... Uh, I'm just going to ask a question, and then pray, and then spend the next several hours answering the question. Maybe not several hours, but uh, spend the next little while looking at the scriptures together. And the reason that I'm using this PowerPoint is because this is a topic that is super precious to me, and I've been studying it for months, and there's no possible way I could put all of that information to you in a way you can... It's taken me months, and I don't understand it, and I know there are smarter people than me in this room, like all the people seated um, are smarter than me. There's no way we're going to take all of that in in one sitting. And so I'm going to have a lot of references and stuff up. Feel free to take pictures and and just use it uh, for your own study later. It's a worthwhile study. So the question that I'm going to ask... I'm going to stop turning around and look at my laptop in front of me. Um, Why... Are we celebrating Christmas? What, like, what are we doing? Why does this day matter? And why am I wearing red and green? That one I don't have the answer to. Um, <laughs> that was my fashion advisor. <laughs> I am colorblind. I don't dress myself without help. So um, why do we celebrate this? Why is it a big deal? And so our goal today is to go through that in a, in a methodical, hopefully, way that's easy to follow. And I've got pictures, so hopefully you can kind of... And I'll ask you some questions, and it'll be somewhat interactive. So hopefully this is a way to look at why are we even here and come away with an answer that we can live by for the next year until we come back next year for the Christmas session. Um, Anyway, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive right in. So yeah, Father, I just want to thank you that you've given us the opportunity uh, to be a group of people come together And we get one thing that unites us, and that one thing is your son. And we just want to say, uh, and I want to use the word in the biblical way, Jesus is awesome. He he inspires, he captures our imagination. We're a little bit afraid of this one who has the power over the, the elements and over, yeah, physical bodies. People are healed by this guy. He raises the dead. Um, Jesus is awesome in the biblical way of the word being used. Um, and we just want to spend today talking about him and how awesome he is and celebrating him and talking about what hope we have because of him and all these things. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would help me because there might be things as I prepared these slides that seemed really important in the moment and in the spirit and, and I enjoyed them and they might not be something you want me to talk about today. And that's all right, Lord. Um, And I I pray that maybe there's something in the back of my mind that I haven't put on a slide that you're going to say, hey, actually, you need to spend some time talking about this. And so, Lord, I pray that I will be totally yielded um, to be used by your Holy Spirit to just be a vessel and a mouthpiece, to proclaim and to shout out the name of the Lord Jesus as being above every other name, high and lifted up and exalted, and so that he will draw all of us to him. And so I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will not be hindered by the technology, but in fact will be able to use it um, for the glory and honor of Jesus. I pray for each one here 
um, as well, that, that they won't be distracted by the technology, they won't be um, put off by my presentation, but in fact that they would hear only your voice speaking to them and they would recognize just how precious um, this Christ is to them. And there might be someone here, Lord, I recognize looking around a room this size, there might be someone here who doesn't know you. And so, Lord, I pray that this message today, as we talk about hope and we talk about waiting for the one, um, yeah, I pray that you would lead blind, lost sinners to yourself. What an awesome present that would be. What a gift is the gift of salvation. And so we just rejoice in you and rejoice in Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. So why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, the birth of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, is the most impactful moment in human history. I'm just going to move this because I like to walk around, and I'm going to walk right into that at some point. Or trip on the... Anyway. Um, It's impactful. Um, If you look at at history before... Like, we literally measure time based on the arrival of Jesus into the world. There's B.C., before Christ, and A.D., which is Latin, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. So we measure time. Uh, Of course, we're changing it in our culture now, and so kids in public school today are going to use B.C. and B.C.E., before Common Era, and anyway, and C.E., Common Era. Anyway, we talk about B.C. and A.D., before Christ, and in the year of the Lord. And so... This arrival of God in human form. We sang some songs about it, and I hope you listen to the words. Um, I used to hate Christmas. Um, Miserable. I was a Grinch. I was Ebenezer the Grinch Scrooge. Like, that was my name. I hated Christmas and everything Christmassy. Um, if If you doubt that, considering... This is the third Christmas message I've given in two years at ABC. Um, If you doubt that, you can just ask my wife and daughter. They'll gladly tell you um, how much I've changed in my approach to Christmas. And part of it is I started listening to the words of Christmas songs that I had memorized as a toddler and never thought about the words. And, And turns out, all of Christmas is pointing to Christ in the Christmas. And so then all of a sudden, I got a little bit more excited about it. I'm like, oh, this is something I could actually appreciate and like and enjoy. And so um, the arrival of God in human form begins a whole new way of living for humanity, for you and me. And so the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, demonstrated a life yielded to the Spirit of God. So often we see the Lord Jesus go and pray. So often we see, and led by the Spirit. And it's just like, so often, and if God in human form needs to be led by the Spirit, spoiler alert, so do we. And so um, I pray that as, and I have prayed and I will continue to pray as I speak, that, that I will be demonstrating this life yielded to the Spirit of God, just like Jesus. He was perfectly obedient. Philippians tells us it was even unto the death of the cross. He was, he was obedient to the direction of the Spirit. That's going to be a theme that comes up um, as we look at this concept of Christ or Messiah um, today. It, when I say it, I mean eternal life. It's kind of a big deal. Eternal life all began, as it were, in Bethlehem. And we sang a song 
about a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. And praise God it didn't end there. We don't gather every Sunday and like, here, eat a bit of hay and drink a little bit of water from the trough. Like that's not, what we, that's not communion. We remember that it's so much more than the birth of a baby. But that's where it started. And so we can get excited about that and we can celebrate who he is. It went to Calvary and it went so far beyond because he's alive and he's risen and we can talk to him today and he's in our lives and he's invested in us. So Jesus has demonstrated this, this yielded life to the Spirit of God and it all began in Bethlehem. I want to tell you just super briefly, I'm going to read a Bible passage and I'm going to tell you about a song I heard growing up as a kid and I played it on the drive here this morning. Um, sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like Sunday morning is when everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And as we're like trying frantically to get here because I'm an emotional wreck before I speak publicly, I'm good now, but, but beforehand I'm ready to throw up. Like it's just not a good time. And so that's when everything that can go wrong does go wrong. That's when we got to spend a little extra time doing hair or we got to, you know, like, oh, I can't find my left shoe or whatever. That, that's when it happens, right? And so Man, life can get inconvenient sometimes. And I don't know if you know who the Oak Ridge Boys are. If you don't, you're missing out. But the Oak Ridge Boys um, were my dad's favorite Christmas album. So growing up as a teenager in particular, I got to hear ad nauseum, in the literal meaning, until I was nauseous, um, the Oak Ridge Boys Christmas CD every year for the entire month of December as a teenager. And one of their songs is called Inconvenient Christmas. And it's a song about how there's a family and they're on their way to celebrate Christmas and he's, the singer is going to his dad's place with his wife and kids. He's taking them to his dad's place and he finds out the day before he gets a nice letter in the mail. Hey, all the Christmas gifts you ordered, they're out of stock. And so you're not getting any of them this year. And he goes, well, that's inconvenient. And then their car breaks down and they get stranded at a truck stop and they, they don't have any money on them, so they, they share a quart of eggnog in a truck stop. And that's inconvenient. And then they finally get to Grandpa's house, but by the time they get there, his Christmas lights have burned it down, and they have to take him home to live with us. And it's just a stack of thing after thing after thing after thing, and it's just, it's, it's funny, but it's a train wreck. And the, the message of the song is in the chorus, where he says, but... The most inconvenient Christmas that ever was, was the first one. When God came to earth to give himself to us. Imagine for a second, hit pause on our lives for a second, and and let's put on our sanctified imagination hats, um, and, and let's think. Here's Mary and Joseph. They're not married. And she's like super pregnant. And they're on their way not in their nice car, on a donkey, smelly, stubborn, obnoxious creature, to travel roughly 100 miles to, to get to a place where they can fill out a census for the government. <laughs> Do you think anyone believed Mary and Joseph's story? Like, sure, Mary and Joseph, it's a miracle. We don't know where the baby came from. No! It's inconvenient. The story captures our attention precisely because it's God 
coming down to this messy, messed up, wrecked world and being born into it and being part of it. And he can relate to us. Now, if you're a history person or a nerd or you're into mythology or whatever, are there any places anywhere where they have a God who comes and is part of humanity and is like, it's never good. First of all, like, have you heard of Zeus? Bad dude. Like 99.87% of all the problems in Greece are because Zeus was like, hey, I wonder what the people are doing. I should go check it out. God coming to earth was a really bad idea in the Greek story. And so here we get to celebrate the living God, a real one, not a made up one, who literally lives on top of a mountain that you could go look at and nobody bothered. Like the, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked with the real God was born in Bethlehem roughly 2,000 years ago. And it's awesome. And we get to talk about that today. Um, I usually have my mouse to click, so I'm glad to see that the arrow also works. And so today we're going to talk about the Messiah. We, um, I'm going to read the Bible passage. Uh, I'm going to read in the NASB translation, so you can feel free to follow along as you like on your uh, book in your hand or tablet or whatever device in your hand. Um, or just listen as I read a few verses here. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived of in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Jesus is a Hebrew name, and it literally means God who saves. You will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. And now we quote Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. So that's, I'm going to read that passage for the specific reference that, that that passage, Matthew wants to make it super clear to everybody who reads his letter about all the things he saw Jesus do. He wants to make sure that you get it, reader. Reader, listen. There was a boy. He was born, and his name was Jesus, and he's not just a normal Jesus boy. It was a fairly common name in, in that time. Um, there are other Jesuses in the Bible, even. And they're not the same Jesus. So it's a fairly common name. And he says, it's not just any Jesus. This God who saves is actually God who saves. And so the whole message, he calls him, he starts out in the genealogy there, calling him Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. Um, so this, today, what I want to talk about is a job description of the Messiah. What are the, what are the Israelite people waiting for? 
at this moment in history when Jesus is born? What can we learn from that, and how do we take it in our lives moving forward from here? Um, also, there's a lot of like sky imagery and stuff, um, and that's intentional. Um, we'll get to a prophecy later, but it talks about how he comes with clouds. He comes with glory from heaven. And so I have intentionally included a lot of sky stuff. So if you're wondering why, that's why the pictures have a lot of sky stuff. Messiah. What does it mean? Well, Messiah is actually an English transliteration of a Hebrew word. In the Old Testament, whenever you're reading your Old Testament and you see the word Messiah, it's usually the Hebrew word Mashiach. And it just means anointed one. Um, the word means literally anointed one. And so we didn't bother translating it. We just wrote it in English letters. And that's, that's how we get Messiah. And the process of anointing so that you know who's an anointed one. And we'll talk about what they were anointed with later. But the process of anointing involves both a pouring on and a smearing on. So you would pour oil on someone and then smear it on their forehead. That, w- that would be how you would anoint someone. So there's a, there's a two-step process in anointing. Um, in the Greek Bible, so in the New Testament, as well as the, the Greek translations of the Old Testament, um, they just translated the word Mashiach to Christos. Christos is a word that means the anointed one. It just means someone who has been anointed. And so um, in English, again, we didn't bother translating that to anointed one. We just said Christos. Okay, we'll just write Christ. And so many people, and possibly even people in this room, think of Christ as like Jesus' last name. Like, I'm Nate Thiessen, he's Jesus Christ, that's how it works. And that's not how it works. It's, it's not a name, it's a description. It's someone who has been set apart. It's someone who's been anointed. That's what it means. And so um, what we could rightfully say Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One. Those are all truthful things, and they're all actually saying the exact same thing. The word Messiah or Christ in the Bible, Christ is only ever used of Christ, of Jesus. Messiah is actually used of a whole bunch of people. They're, they're people who have been mashiached. They're people who've been anointed. Uh, and they're all through the Bible. Most of the time, um, when it's talking like present tense, most of the time in the Old Testament, it's talking about David. Out of all the references, mostly it's David. Um, it does, there are future references that are pointing to someone that I'm going to show you today is Jesus. Um, and so this person who's been anointed acts on God's behalf, whether as a prophet, as a priest, or as a king, and they're interacting primarily with the nation of Israel, but with the world at large. So now that we've had that intro into what the word means, I'm going to ask a question now, and I hope someone here wants some theologian points. I'll ask it in two ways. You get 100 theologian points if you guess the book correctly that it's in. Uh, You get 1,000 theologian points if you know the story. Where in the Bible do we encounter the first thing that's anointed? What is the first anointed thing in the Bible? And Rita, don't cheat, because she heard me muttering to myself as I did a dry run this morning. Um, does anybody know? First of all, let's guess a book. Anybody want to guess a book? I heard Genesis. A hundred theologian points to anybody who said Genesis. Okay, so we've narrowed it down to about 
40-ish chapters or whatever, however many chapters are in Genesis, there's a whack of them. Um, what is anointed? It's the first, there's probably other things that are anointed before, but this is the first described anointing. Any, any guesses? Ooh, that's a good one. No. But it was a good guess. You're really close generationally. It's only one generation removed. No? Okay. Then I can move to the next slide and we'll tell you. Um, First of all, I want everybody to have an idea in their head. When we read the English word, we're not going to read the passage, but when you go back to Genesis 28 later and read the story to see if what I said was true, because that's what that's what people do. We hear somebody say, hey, this is what the Word of God says. What do we do? We check it. We make sure that what I'm saying is true. Um, so in Genesis 28, we have a story. And when you hear the word ladder in the story, don't think roofing ladder that you use to climb up and clean out your eavesdrops. It's, it's like a staircase, okay? Just so that we've... Um, so biblical things that get anointed is our next section here. I've included a picture of olives on a tree. I... Just Google imaged it, so I hope it's olives. I don't know what olives look like. I don't eat them. Um, but olive oil is what's used in the anointing process. And the olive oil is taken by taking olives and using pressure and squeezing the life juice out of them. That's how you get olive oil. Everything's squished out, and there's a fluid. And God gives the people how a list of instructions on how to make anointing oil later. Jacob's Ladder is the first reference we have to anointing in the Bible, where there's an actual process listed. So again, it's not really a ladder. So, so I was surprised, as I began studying this, that the first thing that's an anointed thing isn't a person. I associated anointing with people. Um, and so I want to make sure that I focus on this and cover it, so that you, because this really grabbed my attention. In Genesis 28, here's what's happening. Jacob has just swindled his brother. He's ripped him off, and he's tricked his dad, and he's done a lot of bad stuff, and he's on the run. And he's running to go see Uncle Laban uh, because he doesn't want to get murdered by his brother, and plus getting a wife would be pretty cool. And so he's on the journey, and he lays down and puts his head on a rock. So um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen like pictures of mummies, Uh, from Egypt, but underneath the neck of the mummy, they often have like a U-shaped rock. Think like that, not like a big boulder that he put his head like that, neck crank, like, oh man, that'd be a horrible night's sleep. No, it's it's some sort of support for his head is probably what's happening. And so he's sleeping on a stone, and the nearest city is the city of Luz, or Luz. And and he's sleeping there in the wilderness, kind of out by himself. And while he's sleeping, he has a vision and in that vision, he sees a stairway to heaven. The, the bottom of the stairway is on earth, right where he is. And the top of the stairway is lost in the sky. It's, it's up in heaven. And so God's place where God lives, heaven, and the earth place where people live have collided right here. They're, they're touching and, God, and the messengers of God are moving forward and backwards. They're going up and down the stairway. And so messengers are coming from heaven to earth, and messengers are going from earth to heaven. And that's the vision that Jacob sees. And when he wakes up, he goes, whoa, 
this is a place where heaven and earth meet. This is God's place. And so he takes the rock that he'd been sleeping on and he puts it upright and he anoints it. And he says, this is the house of God. So I will call it house of God. That's the name of the place, Bethel, house of God. And so this place gets a special anointing rock, uh, marking it as the place where heaven's reality and earth's reality collide. God's will is being done on earth, and there's messengers. And, and so this wasn't something Jacob had seen before. Um, you didn't just see messengers from God walking around. Like, that wasn't normal. This was a special thing. And so he marks it. Okay. There's another special place where God's presence is on earth. For 500 theologian points, anybody want to guess what I'm talking about? Where's this next place? Xander, I... Oh, tabernacle is what I'm thinking of. Yes, the tabernacle, and that's our next one. The tabernacle and its contents are anointed. In Exodus 40, God gives Moses a list of instructions of how to make the anointing oil. So it's olive oil with cinnamon and a bunch of other plants that I have no idea what they are, but my research tells me they're all very smelly in a good way. They're perfumey. So this is a very perfumey oil that gets put on things. And so God tells Moses to anoint the tent of meeting, so the tabernacle itself, and all the tools inside. And so he does that. And immediately after, in the narrative of Exodus 40, immediately after Moses has done this, the cloud of God's glory, which is supposed to show us God's presence, comes to the tent. Just, there it is. God's here. And this, I recognize that as I say this, it might not sound super reverent. I hope you can understand that in my heart, man, I'm rejoicing at this. This is awesome. God is here with the people. He's camped in the middle of the camp. He's right here with them, and it's a big deal. And we know it's a big deal because when Moses went into the tent of meeting, every Israelite stood in the doorway of their tent and watched Moses go and meet with God. And it, it's a big deal. And it's a, it's a thing of reverence. And so I know that my presentation style comes across as quite casual and not perhaps reverent isn't the first word you think of when you think of me. And that's okay. But I want you to know that in my heart, this is a really reverent thing. This is powerful. This is God with us. He's living in a tent in the middle of the camp. <clears throat> We also have a bunch of humans that get anointed in the Bible, and so we'll talk about a few of them. This is all a build-up to what are the Israelites looking for when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Just so you know, it's all a build-up so that I can point to Jesus and say, look, he's exactly what they're looking for, and then at the end, we're going to say, and now what does that mean for us? So just so you know, I'm not just giving you a whole bunch of facts and information. That's cool, I guess, but... But this is leading to something. So, so the first person very clearly anointed is the high priest, the first high priest. And his name is Aaron, and he's Moses' brother. So around the same time as the tabernacle getting anointed, Aaron and his sons get anointed. Not this Aaron, although he's also anointed. But Aaron and his sons are anointed, and they're, the, they're supposed to be priests in a consecutive 
uh, passed down from father to son. Three different kings that we read of um, were anointed before they became king. I'm going to tell you about those three kings because it's super important because it's three different ways we can live. One of the kings is Saul. So what happens is there's been the time of the judges, and guess what? The bad guys are still around, and the oppressors are still around. And the nation of Israel says to Samuel, look, Samuel, you're getting pretty old. Your sons all suck. They're horrible examples of what it looks like to, to represent God to the people. They are awful, and we don't want anything to do with them. We need a king. We need a king, Samuel. Now, was this a surprise to God? No. God actually told them in Deuteronomy before they were even in the land, one day you're going to ask for a king, and here's some things that you should know about what a king would look like. Saul gets anointed by Samuel. He's head and shoulders above everybody. He's big, he's strong, he's handsome. And he's going to go be a warrior king and defeat their enemies. Um, and the only problem is Saul doesn't do a great job at that. Um, although his first few years are pretty good, I guess. Um, pretty soon, Saul gets worried about power and he's grasping after stuff. And we'll talk about that a little bit too. <coughs> Pardon me. I meant to block the mic and I just pushed it right into my mouth as I coughed. Sorry for everybody's eardrums there. Uh, David is the next one who's anointed. And David is actually anointed while there's a king on the throne. So Saul just gets anointed and becomes king. David gets anointed... And it's years, actually more than a decade, before David becomes king. Here's what's special about that. David knows that he has been anointed. He knows that he has been chosen by God to be the king of Israel. But there's already a king. So what's the solution? Well, um, we'll talk about that with Jehu. But David says, no, the Lord has anointed Saul. He's also anointed me, but Saul's his anointed one. He'll deal with him, and I'm just going to wait. Whew. Patience is uh, something that I, I grew into. I'm still growing. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily a natural thing for me, so recognizing David's patience in this is really powerful. David is a mighty warrior, and he's surrounded by mighty warriors, um, if you read the lists in Chronicles of the exploits of David's mighty men, these guys are heroes. Like, we should make comic books and movies about these guys. They're awesome. And, and what's happening is David's got this, he could, take, he could take on Saul. He could have a civil war in Israel, but that's not, that's not what God wants. God anointed David to be the king. And so David waits. And so we'll talk about David a little bit. Um, fun fact, I think I already mentioned this, but... When you read the word Mashiach, or the anointed one, in the Old Testament, most of the time, it's talking about David. And in, to some degree, the future David. Um, the next king that gets anointed. So lots of kings, uh, there's at least a few that were anointed as part of their uh, coronation ceremony. So S Saul and David both were anointed more than once, actually. Um, Solomon gets anointed as, as he's sworn in as king. There are others, um, but there's three specific kings who are anointed before their kings, and Jehu is the third one. Now, Jehu comes uh, quite a while after David. He's in the northern kingdom, so Israel has already had a civil war and split into Judah in the south and, and Israel or Ephraim in the north, and so um, 
Joram, the son of Ahab, is the king in the north, and Ahaziah is the king in the, in the south. And they get together, and they go to war, and Joram's bleeding out in his chariot, and Elisha, the prophet of God, comes and anoints Jehu, and says, Jehu, great news, bud, you're the king. God's chosen you. Probably didn't phrase it exactly like that. Um, and so Jehu says, awesome. Let's get to it then, because Jehu is a man of action. And so Jehu goes and slaughters everyone. Jehu goes, and they see him coming, right? And they go, who is it? Man, that, that chariot's moving real fast. It can only be one person. Only one person is enough of a maniac to drive like that. And it's Jehu. And they're right, it's Jehu. And he's a crazy driver, and he comes whipping in in his chariot. And the army says, let's follow him. And they follow him, and they kill everybody associated with both of those kings, which is nuts. He didn't just kill all of the people for his kingdom. He like went the extra mile and went and killed all the male relatives of the king of Judah as well, uh, which he wasn't told to do. But anyways, really, uh, David and Jehu are kind of opposite <laughs> perspectives of what to do when God anoints you for something. David says, okay, I'll wait for you to make me the king then, God. And Jehu goes, cool, I'll just kill everyone and then I'll be the king. And so they're very different approaches, um, is the long and short of it. Um, God also tells Elijah to anoint Elisha as his successor, as prophet. We don't actually read that Elisha does that. Elijah does that. Elijah was also told to anoint Jehu like 20 years before Elisha did it. And so it didn't happen. Elijah didn't follow through. So we're not sure that Elisha actually was anointed, but God told Elijah to anoint him to recognize publicly his replacement as prophet. Um, you might be wondering about the pictures, uh, what relevance they have. Well, Elisha shows us what instant obedience should look like. The horse hooves are Jehu driving his chariot like a madman to kill everybody who stands between him and the throne. Um, Elisha says... I'm a farmer. I'm driving my yokes of oxen to plow up the fields. Um, he's got his, his version of a quad track out there. And what does he do? Offers a burnt offering. That's what he does. He slaughters his quad track. He, he slaughters his oxen and offers them as a sacrifice. There's no going back. He doesn't go, hey, uh, right now I'm a farmer. I'm going to be a prophet. Then I'm going to go back to being a farmer. No. God has anointed me to this special calling in life. I am going to be his spokesperson. I'm going to do that. And he gives up everything to follow the will of God. Um, so anyway, I just I included the picture of the cow to remind me to tell you about that. That's a good way to follow the will of God. So what's the nation expecting? Um, there's a ton of stuff that I could say about this. But essentially, the nation, the children of Israel, at the time of Jesus, are looking for a human agent. They're waiting for a person to come and accomplish God's work. If you do some research today, what are Jewish people looking for in a Messiah? First of all, not all Jewish people today 
uh, believe that the Messiah is a literal person that's going to come. Some of them think it's metaphorical. Some of them, Anyway, the people who are waiting literally for a Messiah today because they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, those people believe they're waiting for a political leader to come and save them. That's what they're waiting for. That person is going to be doing God's work, but they're just going to be a person. And so here's what happens. Um, the Israelites are waiting for a person who's going to come, and that person is going to restore the people to the land. The people have been in exile. The kingdoms of, well, first of all, the whole nation of Israel has been split for hundreds of years. And Israel and Judah have been carried away into captivity, and some have straggled back. That's the awesome thing about God. There's always a select remnant. There's always a few who are going to come back to the Lord. And that's an awesome study on its own through the scriptures, and it's really challenging and really encouraging. I want to be one of the few. I want to be one of the elect or select who are following after the Lord with my whole heart. That's what I want to be. And so, so this king, this anointed one, this Messiah figure is going to come, and he's going to bring the people back to the land. He's also going to restore worship of God in the temple. That's, that's going to come up later. And he's going to restore law to the courts. And so there's pictures there of an old temple building with pillars. I couldn't find a picture of the, the, the original Hebrew temple because they didn't have cameras back then. And it's been destroyed since 70 AD. Um, the, there's a law figure and there's a whack of people. So, so whoever this Messiah figure is, he's bringing people. He's bringing worship to God, and he's restoring law to the land. That sounds pretty reasonable. That sounds pretty good. That's what they're looking for. Um, so let's talk in three parts about what this Messiah figure should look like biblically. Um, and I've got a picture of a lion, because that's one of the main motifs, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So lions are big and scary and intimidating. They're beautiful, but they're terrifying. I do not want a lion to walk in here. That would be scary. I think lions are awesome, but I don't want one in here. This is sort of the respect and the reverence and the awe of here comes one who's awesome. They're powerful. They're strong. They're able to do things, and they're good, but they're not tame. They're not something that I just want to mess with. And so here comes this prophecy about the king of Israel, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's some things that are known about this king who's going to come. And so we'll talk about them. There's some geography that's known. Um, some of it is literal cities and places. Can you get me some more water, please? Thank you. I'm talking too much. <clears throat> geography. So in Micah 5, we have a prophecy that tells us that the, the chosen one, the anointed one, is going to come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Um, what's significant about that is guess where King David was from? Hint, Bethlehem. Um, in Samuel, we find out about Bethlehem. That's this, 1 Samuel 17 is where David's anointed. And so we find out that Samuel goes to this place called Bethlehem. It's in the, the region of Judah, in, in all the allotted portions of the tribes. Judah had their section of land, and Bethlehem's in there in the nation of Israel. And also, what's really neat is in Numbers, we're told that when this anointed one comes, he's going to come under a star. Hmm. I 
think we sang a song about that. Anyways, this is really cool. There's some geography associated with this coming one. They know where he's going to be. They know when because they'll see a star over Bethlehem and then we know, oh, the Messiah is here. <coughs> and so, fun fact, the wise men from the east, they come to Bethlehem. Well, they actually come to where Herod is because Herod is the king. And they say, hey, we're looking for the new king. Uh, the star showed up over Bethlehem and so that means that the Messiah is here. And that didn't go well for baby boys in Bethlehem um, in that time frame. Uh, genealogy. They know where he's going to come from as a people, right? And so we know this because in Deuteronomy 17, God says that the one, the anointed king, must come from within the children of Israel. So ethnically an Israelite. Thank you. Um, the one must come from Israel. But... It's not just the whole nation of Israel, which is millions of people. There's going to be a specific tribe. And we find that out in Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons. We find out there, in prophetic manner, Jacob speaks and says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And so that means that kings are going to come from Judah. And so this Messiah that they're waiting for as a nation. They know he's going to show up in Bethlehem and there's going to be a star overhead. They know he's an Israelite. They know he's from Judah. They actually even know that he comes from David's line. And so whoever this Messiah is, he's going to be able to trace his history, his genealogy. Like I'm, I'm a terrible reference. Um, Chris is the son of Richard. Richard is the son of, I'm not going to say his real name, but we call him Jim. Um, he would be really upset with me if I announced his real name to the world on the internet. But um, so the, um, there's a there, and his dad's name was Harold, and and we can trace our genealogy back four generations, and then it stops. I don't know who Harold's dad was, and so um, this king is going to be able to trace his lineage all the way back to David, and we find that in Second Samuel seven. By all means, if you want to fact-check me on any of this, like take pictures, cross-reference it, let me know. Um, I might misread something or, or <laughs> typo a, a verse. That's, that's quite likely. Um, so yeah, feel free to follow up with me after. So what will the Messiah do? So we know where he's going to come to. We know what people group he's going to come out of. Um, what's he going to do? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present four things specifically, and they all start with P, because I'm a nerd and I love alliteration. And so um, it helps me to remember, he's going to be involved in politics, he's going to have power, there's going to be pain, and he's going to bring peace. And those are the four things that the Messiah must do. Now here's the problem. The Jewish people of Jesus' day were not associating, um, spoiler alert for the next slide, Psalm uh, 22, Isaiah 53, they're not associating the suffering servant with the Messiah. They're thinking that's two different people because how can he be the conqueror and get beat? Like, that doesn't make sense. So we can look clearly at the scriptures and it shows very clearly what the Messiah is going to do. Isaiah 11, we find out that this one is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Isaiah 42, we find out that it's not just a restoration of this tiny little kingdom on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. But somehow, this one is going to influence all of the nations and bring justice. Uh, Jeremiah tells us that he's going to be wise, just, and righteous, and that he's going to bring security and save Israel. 
Ezekiel tells us that under his rule, the very hearts of people are going to change and Israel is going to follow the law. That has never happened. Since Joshua and his generation died, like the thing is that Israel does not wholeheartedly follow God. Like it's over and over and over every generation, just like us, just like me. For years of my life, I tried to walk with one foot in God's world and one foot in my world, and those, it kept getting further and further apart. And I, yeah, it's hard. And, and here's what happens with all of Israel. And, but there's coming a day when, when the Messiah is reigning as king, the hearts of people are changed. Amen. Woo! Hallelujah. Hallelujah! We're going to be different. Power is associated with this one who comes. We find that out in Psalm 2. The heathen rage and the kings imagine vain things. And they're going against God and against his anointed. And what happens? He's God's king. No one could stop him. That's what Psalm 2 tells us. He's unstoppable. He's got power that they can't even imagine. Isaiah 9. He's going to overthrow the oppressors. The word is really fun. In Hebrew, if you can do a study on the word overthrow, it's actually overturn. It's to flip something on its head. And it's really fun in Jonah. And we'll talk about that when we get to the prophet section. So hopefully I remember, if I don't, like throw something at me. So I remember to talk about overturn because it's a really fun word. Um, over, he's overturning the oppressors and setting up a glorious government. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen a glorious government. Yes. People in government generally tends to go bad. But this guy, this human, is going to come and do something that no other human has done. And he's going to come, Daniel 7 tells us, with clouds of heaven. He's coming with the very presence of God and the glory of God. And guess what God gives him? Dominion. Do you know who else God gave dominion to? Adam. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He made everything, and it was all really good, and he gave dominion to man. Thumbs up or thumbs down, how good of a job did man do with that dominion? Did they do a good job or a bad job? They did a bad job. You're right. And we continue that pattern today. Um, not that I'm an eco-terrorist, but there are, like, we historically, as humans, have done a pretty bad job of managing the earth's resources. Um, just historically. Um, I'm not saying go buy electric vehicles because that's even worse, actually, but that's a separate point. This is one who comes, and he comes, and he brings the presence of God with him. The glory of God comes with him, and he sets up a glorious kingdom, and he has dominion over everything. That does not sound like a human to me. <laughs> that sounds like God coming to do something big. And the reason that I suspect that is because a few verses later in the same chapter, um, we find out that his rule is forever. Every person I've ever heard of has died, with, with the exception of Enoch, who walked with God and was taken, and Elijah, who maybe was same thing, not really sure. People die. So no human one can have an everlasting kingdom. That's not how it works. So this is God coming as a human, which we only know this in hindsight. I'm not judging Daniel and the rest for not recognizing that it's God um, as a human. We know this because we saw him and we've seen what he can do. 
And so the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be involved in politics. He's going to have to do with the world. He's going to have power. There's going to be pain. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, Jehu brought, brought the pain. Yeah, Saul brought the pain. These are the guys who brought the pain, and they conquered all the bad guys, and yeah, kill them all. That, not that kind of pain. It's not that kind of pain. The Messiah, Daniel 9 says, is going to be cut off and have nothing. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, tell us a list of things, and I'm going to list them for you. Um, I'm going to assign someone. Uh, never mind. I won't assign someone this task of reminding me to talk about the branch later. Uh, I'm going to talk about it now. But the Messiah is despised. He's abandoned. He's afflicted. He's struck down. He's humiliated. And he's going to die for transgressors. That does not sound like a conquering king. <laughs> Seems like there's some complexity to this Messiah who's coming. Genesis 3 told Eve, God told Eve, that, that she's got a descendant who's going to stomp on the head of the serpent, but the serpent's going to bruise his heel. There's pain that comes. Isaiah 50 is actually really graphic. It talks about how they're going to beat him, they're going to pull his beard, which hurts. Like, I know not everyone here has a beard, but having your beard pulled, like, really hurts. It really hurts. It's not fun. And it's a clear description of what's going to happen. And he's going to be spit on. And that is so shameful and disgusting to do that to someone. Um, this is the little, just because I want to make sure that we know, in all this, um, I think God has a great sense of humor. And I'm going to point that out because I've got the branch, which is referenced in Isaiah. Um, it literally means branch. So he's, he's, a, he's a part of a tree branch. Um, fun thing. Do you know what the word Nazareth means? Stick town. The Messiah, the branch, is a guy from stick town. Like, get it? Like, that's hilarious. Like, God, God put him in the sticks. He put him in a place where branches are. Like, God, like, you can't make this up. It's all woven together. And that God knows that I will find that hilarious and includes that in the scripture. Like, that's amazing. And I think it's a sign that God is so much bigger than we could even imagine. That even associated with the pain that comes on so heavily in Isaiah, he includes a little joke for us. Like, hey, by the way, he's going to be the branch, guys. We see a man, branch. And Jesus shows up and they go, he's from Sticktown? Like, come on. But he's going to bring peace. Zechariah 9, uh, the king that comes is going to ride into town on a donkey. Not on a war horse, on a donkey. Foreshadowing. Uh, Isaiah 2. They're going to take their weapons of war. They're going to melt them down and turn them into farm tools. Everything in the world is going to be about being fruitful and not about killing each other. That's not a world any of us have experienced. The world we live in is all about, I'm going to get mine. I'm Jehu. I'm going to kill. That, that's our world. That's where we live. And, and here's a world that he's going to bring into play where, where weapons of war turn into farm tools. The laws of nature are going to be overturned in Isaiah 11, um, where 
there's a list of creatures that are going to be bedded down in the same barn stall, I guess. Um, and they're predator creatures and prey creatures. And so not only are the predator humans not going to be killing and, and murdering and whatnot, but the predator animals aren't going to be a threat to the prey animals anymore. This is an overturned world. Um, Jeremiah tells us that Judah is going to be saved, that Jerusalem is going to be safe. Uh, that's not a word that many of us would use about Jerusalem now. Zephaniah really highlights this. Actually, it's going to be such a radical change, there's not going to be any more sin. What? Hallelujah is right. He's going to bring peace. That's who this Messiah is. That's who this king is. Um, for, for fun, for nerds, there's a timeline there of what kingdom kind of looks like. But we're talking about prophecies and stuff over a thousand year period. Um, we got to keep moving because I happen to notice the clock. Hopefully none of you have. I included a picture of this cute little sheep um, who's totally not going to go get sacrificed, guys. Like, don't. But, but we're talking about the Messiah's blessing. He's coming... And there's a high priestliness associated with this Messiah. Okay? That's what I want to get to. Um, Messiah as ruler and religious figure? Question mark. There are three key defining factors of the Messiah that I'm using as sort of the foundation point to build from. And there's lots more stuff, but these are the three that I'm going to give you. In Ezekiel 37, um, when the Messiah, when the anointed one is in charge, there's going to be a restoration of the presence of God with Israel. So in their minds, the temple will be restored. That's what they're thinking. In Psalm 110, we find out that the, the anointed one is both king and priest. That's weird. And we'll get to that when we get to the next slide or two. Um, in Isaiah 11, we find out that this Messiah knows the law and obeys it. So that's a fun little foreshadowing of what's to come. What's the difference between kings and priests? We actually have a list in Deuteronomy before they're even in the land. God tells them, yeah, eventually you're going to want a king because obviously you are. And so here's what a king's got to look like. And in Leviticus 21 and 22, we have a, a description of what a priest should look like. So there's job descriptions for both of these guys. In Deuteronomy, we find out that this king must be of the people of Israel, chosen by God. The, the, the priest must be not just of the kingdom of Israel, not just of a specific tribe, not just of a specific family, but of a specific son in that family and all of his sons following him. And so that's the sons of Aaron. Um, the king must not hoard for himself. Horses, particularly he's not allowed to bring in stallions from Egypt. Um, he's not allowed to accumulate wives. And he's not allowed to accumulate gold. All three of which are immediately what Solomon does as king. Just in case anybody missed that in the story of Solomon. He's, he's one that we're like, oh, Solomon was a pretty good king. But, you know, eventually he kind of... Didn't do as good of a job. No, no, immediately Solomon's like, you know what I need? The three things God said kings shouldn't hoard. Women, horses, and money. What a guy, right? Solomon's not the one. He's not the Messiah. And we know that. Um, the priest must be clean and without blemish. So he can't have physical defects, no diseases, no gruesome injuries that have maimed him or whatever. That He can't have defects. 
and he must live a holy or set-apart life. That's an expectation. The king is required to study the Torah and obey it. The priest is required to know the law and teach it to others. The king is required to be humble, and the priest gets to offer incense and sacrifices on behalf of themselves and others. So that's the difference between kings and priests. So let's talk briefly. There's four kings I want to reference, kings who acted as priests. And again, this is all just to give you a big backdrop of what Israel is looking for in a Messiah. The first time we find a king who acts as a priest is Melchizedek, king of Salem, and he's actually also listed as both king of Salem and high priest of the Most High God. Um, Melchizedek, notoriously not an Israelite, because he's two generations before Israel is even born. So he's not one of the people of Israel. And so fun foreshadowing, and I'll leave you to study the person of Melchizedek and when it shows up in the New Testament and who it's talking about later. That's pretty fun. Um, So that's one person. And he's such a significant figure that Abraham, who at this time is still Abram, father of nations, Abram gives him, Melchizedek, a tithe. He gives him offerings and gifts because he's representing God Most High. Uh, The next time we encounter a king who acts as a priest, it's Saul. We remember Saul. He is head and shoulders above everybody else. Gorgeous man. Big fighter. Tough guy. Anointed. Chosen by God. Um, To be king, though, not priest. And so what happens in the case of Saul is that Saul just doesn't feel like waiting anymore. And he offers some sacrifices he wasn't supposed to offer. And he could have waited, but he didn't. He didn't have the patience that marked David who waited for over a decade to be king. Saul was like, I can't wait for the priest. we got war to fight. we got stuff to do. And so he offers sacrifices at Gilgal, and that cost him. Cost him a dynasty. God says, your sons will not be kings after you. And only Ishbosheth had any kind of rule, and he was sort of in house arrest. And it was, a, yeah. So Saul acted as a priest. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Is that good or bad? Yeah, I'm seeing lots of thumbs down of the people who chose to participate. Um, Thumbs down. Bad. Bad news. Okay, next king. Joash, or Jehoash, depending on which book you're reading. Uh, 2 Kings 12 is where you can get this. He's actually part of one of these massacres that happens. Um, He's the only survivor of his family, uh, the only male survivor of his family group. And so he gets hidden in the temple, and the priests hide him, and they raise him. And so guess what? He grows up with a healthy respect for the Torah, and he loves the priests. And as long as the high priest who had raised him is alive, he rebuilds the temple, he renovates it, he cares about those things. And as soon as that guy dies, crash and burn. He doesn't care about the temple. He doesn't care about God anymore. He's worshiping idols, and it's just, it's awful. He leads Israel, leads Judah astray. Um, So thumbs up, thumbs down, good or bad. No, it's all bad. Like, yeah, it starts out great as long as someone's there like, hey, make sure you do good. Hey, make sure you don't do... And then as soon as that voice is gone, guess what he does? Everything he's hidden. Uh, Second Chronicles 19. This one's horrible. King Uzziah, he's super, super excited 
They just want to battle. He's jacked. He's like, whoa, let's go, boys. We're going to worship God. This is awesome. He gave us everything. And he marches right into the temple and starts doing stuff that kings aren't supposed to do. Priests are. And he actually has his hands on holy set-apart tools that are only for priests. And it's so bad in his excitement. Like he wanted to worship God. And in his excitement, he did it all wrong. And, an, and a band of priests have to like block him and get him out of the temple. And when they get him out, he's covered in leprosy. And for the rest of his life, he has re- leprosy. And he's tucked away in a house and his son actually rules as like a co-regent um, for the rest of his. So Uzziah enters the temple and tries to act like a priest and it's all bad. It is not good. And so these are times when kings have acted like priests. And so there's, there's a bit of confusion in the Israelite mind about like this Messiah is going to come and somehow some of the stuff he does seems like king, some's priestly. Like Anyway, there's some confusion over that. Again, if you're a nerd like me and you like to see timelines and stuff, I figured out how to make them on a PowerPoint, so that's mostly why there's a few of them in here. Um, and so from, from roughly 1,800 years before Christ, where Melchizedek and Abram are part of a battle of five kings, which is like in historical record outside of the Bible, in addition to being in the Bible, um, that's where there's a king and priest, all the way up to, here's a fun modern, well, more modern one, uh, King Herod. King Herod uh, comes in and he actually conquers the Hasmoneans, who are a Jewish uh, bunch of rulers, and he calls himself king. Uh, So he he takes over in a hostile takeover, and he puts a bunch of money into rebuilding the temple, and he gives the the Sanhedrin a lot of say in how the Jewish laws are are executed, as it were. They they can't execute people, but they have everything else. Um, So he has a lot of say in that. And so actually, another really interesting study is who people thought was the Messiah in in their time. And and those go back uh, all the way to God actually calls Cyrus of Persia, my anointed one. Same word, Mashiach. Um, Not saying that Cyrus is the anointed one. He's saying, hey, I've chosen this guy. He's going to do this. And it was 120 years before Cyrus was born. So that's fun. And, and it goes all the way to about the 1600s. There was a guy, um, Shabbatai Tzvi, and he was part of a like, rebellion and trying to force things together. And so there's thousands of years of people thinking, well, maybe this guy's the Messiah. Maybe this guy's the Messiah. And so my exciting part about today is that I'm going to point to you the one who is the Messiah, and his name's Jesus. The, the final thing, so the, prof, the, the Messiah is going to be a king, the Messiah is going to be a priest, and the Messiah is also going to be a prophet. Um, so that guy is really excited about announcing something. And that's what prophets do. They announce, they proclaim, they tell you, hey, this is the purpose of God. So kings are supposed to live out the rule of God in the world. They're bringing God's presence through his rule of law and order. Priests bring about the presence of God in the world. And prophets share his purpose with the world. And so that's what's happening. The Messiah is going to announce, um, and so what's, what is a prophet? What do they do? Prophets have power from on high, non-human power specifically. And so there's two guys that I'll point to, and I'm trying to move this right along because I really want to get to the end point here. But um, Elijah was a prophet, and we find out in the New Testament that he was a man just like we are. 
he had similar passions to us. And you can kind of see that in his life. He had some pretty severe depressive episodes. He sometimes wasn't very obedient. Um, He caused drought and rain through prayer. Now, he didn't do it. The power that he was tapped into, which is the Holy Spirit of God, did that. Uh, He knew a widow, and he made sure that she didn't run out of food. And he was in a contest with the prophets of Baal, uh, whose God is realer contest, and he won um, by a lot because a soaked, drenched in water sacrifice burned up totally. Uh, he also used his cloak to part the Jordan River, so that's cool. Um, I don't have a cloak that's that uh, water resistant, so the river parts. But um, Elisha follows Elijah. There's a couple significant things. And there's a bunch of other stuff too, but Elisha uh, eats some poison stew and doesn't get sick, and neither do other people. And and he also is the one who Naaman goes to when he has leprosy and wants to be cured. And so through Elisha, leprosy is cured. So those are significant things of power in the lives of the prophets. Uh, They they also proclaim things. They tell things. So this this one, the Messiah that comes, is going to have power, and he's going to have a message that he's proclaiming. The messages, I've listed six messages of six different prophets. Joel said, hey, we've been sinning. Plagues are going to come. Amos says, hey, we've been sinning, everyone. Stop sinning. It's bad. Jeremiah says, we should repent and turn back to God. Punishment is going to come. Ezekiel says, hey, I've seen the glory of God. You should know about it. And he also like live acted out scenes of what was happening in Jerusalem hundreds of miles away. And so people could see what was happening. And he he acted out prophecies against Israel, Judah, and other nations as well. And my favorite part about Ezekiel is that he actually also prophesies hope. There's salvation coming. That's his message. Hosea is another living object lesson of God's love for a people who keeps not being faithful. A people who somehow... Uh, keep going to other gods and then coming back to God and be like, hey, we, were, we did a bad thing. And it's just over and over, this pattern. And that happens, it's acted out in, in the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. Daniel sees these fantastical, apocryphal in the true meaning of, of, of apocalyptic, so unveiling or revealing of um, things in the future, like Israel and the Messiah. Um, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty awesome book. There's three prophets that I'm going to briefly blaze through. Um, Moses acts as God's prophet. We know that because he's told by God, you are going to speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. Um, He also acts as a prophet in that he tells Israel what's going to happen. In Deuteronomy, he says, if you don't obey, you're going to get carried away into exile. A thousand years later, that's exactly what happens. Um, He tells them in Deuteronomy 18 that they should always be on the lookout for another prophet like Moses. So lots of prophets come after Moses, but they're supposed to be looking for one like Moses, who, what did Moses do? Well, he rescued the people. Obviously God did it, but Moses was the the leading figure who rescued the people, who showed them the way. They didn't follow it, but he showed them how to live like, like God wants. And then in Deuteronomy 30, he issues a challenge to the nation. He says, hey, you have two choices. 
You can be patient and wait on the Lord and you can do what he says, or you can just do whatever you want, see how that works out. I know that you're going to do whatever you want, but I want you to do what God wants. Now, I know that I'm wasting my breath even telling you this because you're already thinking of all the things you want to do, but, but God wants you to do something and you should do that. So I'm telling you, even though I already know you're not going to do it. Like, can you imagine having to give that message and looking out and like, oh man, that'd be... Nathan is another prophet. And no, I didn't include him just because of his name. Uh, Nathan speaks for God to King David. David says, hey, I want to build God a house. It's really weird that I have this whole city that I live in and a, and a palace and stuff, and God still lives in a tent. Like, that's weird. I'm going to build him a house. And Nathan initially says, yeah, sure, go ahead. That seems like a good idea. And then God says, hey, Nathan, you should probably speak for me. And Nathan goes, oh, okay. And so he goes back and he says, actually, David, um, God, here's what you're saying about the house thing. Um, he's going to build you a house. And it's going to last forever. And so he's prophesying, but he's also answering a question the king had. Then a few chapters later, um, David has seen Bathsheba, and he's done what he did. He murdered Uriah in war and stole his wife, and, and she's having a baby, and Nathan comes and says, Hey, uh, king, I got a story to tell you, and it's about a rich dude, lots of sheep, and he steals a little sheep from one guy who only has one sheep. David's outraged, as we all should be. That's oppression. That's rich people taking from poor people. And it's bad. And David's upset. And he goes, oh, where's this guy? I want to get him. And Nathan says, you're the man. And then he tells him what the consequences are going to be. Um, In 1 Kings chapter 1, David is now on his deathbed. And Nathan is one of the ones who makes sure that the chosen successor, Solomon, comes to the throne and not the scheming firstborn, who theoretically should have had the birthright, um, Adonijah. And so that's Nathan. Jonah is a prophet. Ooh, ooh. And he really never got it. Sad but true. Jonah received instruction from the Lord. And what does he do? Runs away. He doesn't obey. Ha! I'm not going to Nineveh. That's crazy. Those guys are maniacs over there. They're killing people, spiking them. Like, it's not good. I'm not going there. And he runs away. And he becomes a living object lesson that Jesus references when he teaches. Um, He preaches the world's worst sermon. God told him a big message of what to tell Nineveh. And what does he do? Uh, This is so fun to study. He goes into Nineveh and he preaches a five-word sermon. It's five words in Hebrew. It's like eight in English. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. Now, overturned, I mentioned it earlier, has two meanings. One is like, we're going to conquer. The top is going to come all the way down to the bottom. But it also is like we use the word turned over a new leaf. It's about a new beginning. So Jonah's thinking, God's going to wipe these guys out. It's going to be awesome. So he comes in and he preaches. He's like, I don't want you to get saved. And his gospel message that he's preaching is the worst in the world. He never once mentions God. He never once mentions why they're going in, they're in danger. And he never mentions repentance. But guess what happens? And well, Jonah, he leaves and he goes to sit on a nice hillside to watch the fire come down from heaven and destroy Nineveh because... I mean, Nineveh's way worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And while he's sitting there watching, revival breaks out in Nineveh. The worst gospel preacher 
Jonah comes in and delivers this awful message that doesn't tell anybody anything. And as a result, the whole city covers themselves in sackcloth and ashes and repents. And Jonah's waiting for the fireworks and massive revival breaks out. And guess how Jonah responds to that? He pouts like a baby. Like I would probably have done, if I'm being really honest. Um, so this overturn, like the word plays that God uses and the, the way he just gets people, it's so fun to look at and you should definitely study that. Um, so now let's get to the Messiah born and revealed. Um, the Messiah, I'm going to show you how Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the man from the sticks, the branch of David, uh, the branch of Jesse, he's coming and he's fulfilling the job description of the Messiah. And then we'll end with what does that mean for us as we leave here. So Jesus displayed that he was a prophet in the Gospel of John, and he's done way more than these. Uh, I just couldn't fit more on the pages. So um, in John 7, 8, 17, and Luke 9, he speaks clearly on behalf of God. He has an authority that is God's authority, and he's speaking on behalf of God to people. In Matthew 16, and a whole bunch of other places, he says to the disciples, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The priests are going to get me. They're going to crucify me. And on the third day, I'm going to raise again. And he told them that a bunch of times before it happened. He also told them in Acts 1, hey, uh, guys, just wait here, and the Holy Spirit is going to come. They didn't even know what that meant. But some of them, a select few. 1 Corinthians 15, we find out that there are over 500 people at once that saw Jesus. How many people... Question for those of you who were paying attention in Acts Bible study in Acts chapter 2. How many people were there in the upper room who were gathered together when they got the Holy Spirit? How many people? Was it 500? Was it more? How many people was it? I'm going to suggest 120. It might be 70. I'm seeing 70. I think it was 120. <laughs> but it's, it's a portion it's a, it's a remnant. It's a select few. Um, Jesus also did a whole bunch of healings and miracles. The time doesn't permit. The pages of the world couldn't hold all the stories of the awesome things Jesus did. He's clearly a prophet. He's speaking. Nobody doubted that. Muslims think Jesus is a prophet. Like, nobody's doubting that Jesus is a prophet. That he's speaking in a way that people just didn't speak. Um, priest. What does Jesus do that marks him as a priest? Well, he teaches the scriptures. That's one thing. Um, he forgives sins. <laughs> the priest interceded between sinners and God. And here's Jesus doing that. Not only that, but he did it not in the temple, which is crazy. He cleansed the temple. That was actually one of the job, the duties of the priest. Um, he prays for people. <laughs> read John 17 every time you're like, man, the Lord is forgetting me right now. Read that prayer. If you're, if you're feeling, because I recognize this is Christmas time, and for some people, it's a really great time of year. But for some people, it's just another reminder of how alone they are and how sad things are and how much things in their life aren't going the way they want. And I'm aware there are probably people in this room who Christmas isn't a good day for you. So what we need to look at is that Jesus prays for his people, the hurting people, the non-united people. He prays for all of them. Um, Jesus was found faultless at his trial. There's nothing, he's done nothing wrong. He's faultless. He's blameless. He's innocent. He's a king. He rides the donkey into Jerusalem, which is just amazing. Um, clearly, he knows his Old Testament. 
And, and he's wise, just, and righteous in Mark 6. He couldn't be stopped, Peter says in his sermon, where he says, hey, you guys killed him and he couldn't stop him. You put him on a cross and he's still conquering the world with his message of new life. And in 2 Peter 1, we find out that Jesus restores God's kingdom. He makes us a kingdom of priests. And that kingdom is going to last forever, which is awesome. Um, we're going to skip some of these, but there's prophecies about Jesus that are fulfilled. There's names of Jesus that are fulfilled. So why uh, do we celebrate Christmas? Well, the birth of the long-awaited Messiah is cause for celebration. It's hope born. Like, it's a big deal. Um, we get to have hope because the Messiah was born. One day soon, God is going to make all things new, and the reality of heaven and earth colliding or being in the same place is going to happen again. And it's awesome. It's the story of God becoming flesh, how the divine was born and grew up as a human. And it captures our imaginations. And it can if we let it. Today and for the rest of the year, not just during this season. And so like the angels, I just want to say, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Like this is a good message. That, that Christ is born in the town of Bethlehem. And, and we have hope because of that. And so that's why we celebrate Christmas. So what does this mean for us? I'm going to wrap it up with this slide. Um, I have a million more things I could say, but I'm not going to. Um, people who followed Jesus in the Bible, in Acts, we came through this when they were in Antioch, they're called Christianoi. And that literally is a plural word of anointed. That hasn't happened yet in the Bible. Now, it's assigned to them by um, outsiders. It's not taken as a title by the Christians. Um, but what happens is people outside say, oh, look at this bunch of little Christs here running around. They're followers of that Christ guy. Um, but, but what's happened in the Old Testament is that there's been an anointed. Sometimes there was a couple at a time, like Saul and David. But generally speaking, it's singular. It's one person who's the anointed one. Here, we have a whole bunch of anointed ones. What? This is the kingdom of God happening. His presence is here with us. It's in us, actually, if you're a follower of Christ. And so, uh, Christianoi, just so you're familiar, um, in the Bible, we have another reference to a, gr it's, it's a, it's a group name. Um, so in most Bibles, it's translated the Herodians. Um, it's actually Herodinoi. And the Herodinoi are the people of Herod. It's the people who are trying to get his kingdom come and will be done on earth, um, like it is in Jerusalem. And, and so they're about Herod's business. And it's actually used in, in other Roman history, Augustinoi. And those are the people of Augustus. Those are the emperor's people, and they're out there doing the emperor's business. And so here, to be called Christanoi means we're people who are about God's business, and we're doing what he would do. And I think that's pretty awesome. Not only is that pretty awesome... Um, but Peter, actually, in 1 Peter, claims the word. It's the first time that a Christian calls themselves a Christian is in 1 Peter, chapter 4. Everywhere else in the Bible, which it shows up three times, everywhere else 
it's outside people who aren't followers of Jesus pointing at followers of Jesus and saying, hey, those are the, those Christ people. Those are those Jesus people. But, but what happens in 1 Peter is 1 Peter 4, he says, hey, Christianoi, hey, you anointed people. Um, got some news for you. Um, because we're the anointed people, uh, we get to be part of that pain that I was talking about earlier. We get to be part of the suffering. There's good things that are going to come out of that, but, but suffering is part of bringing the realities of heaven and earth together. God's world and our world colliding is painful. It leads to life change, which is hard. And it's painful, and we're going to suffer for Christ. But that's how we know that we're on this trajectory of being the anointed ones. That means that people living out the law of God are the kind of people that we should be. And so as we leave this place to go do our own stuff and do whatever, we're people who are called to love God with all our heart. Everything we've got, we love God with that, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the kind of people who are kings like the kings were supposed to be. We're people who are bringing the law of God to bear in our world, just like the kings were supposed to do. We're supposed to know the law and obey the law. And how do we do that? By loving God with everything we got and by loving our neighbor as ourselves. It also means that we're people who practice the presence of God, just like the priests. Well, how do we do that? Well, we spend time with him. We get in his word. We talk to him. And know that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. And so whenever we get together as a group like this, we're just a whole bunch of anointed ones in one spot. And we're bringing God with us. And he's already here. And it's just a whole collision of God's place and our place mixing together for his glory. So we're daily walking with him. And it also means that like the prophets, we are people who are aware of the purposes of God. He wants to make you new. And he wants to make you new. And he wants to make you new. And he wants to make me new. And that's what he's doing. And his purpose is that we go from here and make disciples. That's the whole thing. Like, we think making disciples happens here. It doesn't. We're here to encourage each other to go do good works and make disciples out there. And we're supposed to be doing that. That's what, if we're prophets, if we're anointed ones who are aware of the purposes of God, we're supposed to share them with others. And the final picture is about being fruitful. We look at the fruit of the kings and the priests and the prophets from before. We look at their lives and we go, yikes. Yikes. That fruit was a little rotten. Yikes. I don't even think that that's a pumpkin. I don't even think that is a fruit. Like, what is that? I don't know what that, I don't know what's happening there, but I don't think that's what God meant. And we know, because we have a list of the fruits of the Spirit in the Bible, in our Bible in an English language that we can read or whatever language you read your Bible in, we can read it and there's a list of things and we can look at ourselves and we go, hey, am I being fruitful? Am I doing these things? And so as we leave this place, as we think about we're, we're the followers on after, 
of a people who waited and waited and desperately pleaded for the arrival of the one who's going to change everything. And I'm here to tell you, his name's Jesus, and he's done it. And he's changed my life, and he'll change your life. And it's an awesome thing. So that is why we celebrate Christmas. Because he's worth it. Because he's awesome. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray. I don't know if anybody wants to do like a song or something after. I didn't really ask any questions. I just came up here. So um, thank you for being here. Thank you for your attention. I hope that your eyes are fixed on the one. Not the babe in the manger. Not even the Christ on the cross. But the one who's alive forevermore. And he's at the right hand of God. And he's offering you a gift of salvation and new life. And he's inviting you in to follow him. So Father, as we just think about how awesome your son Jesus is, we just want to recognize that he is your chosen one. He is the Messiah. He is Christ. He is the one who came to make all things new, to flip everything upside down, to take weak people and make them strong, and to take stupid people and make them wise, and to take all the mighty things of the world and confound them. That's who Jesus is, and he's done through death. He's brought about life for us. And so, Lord, I just pray. I pray that we would live that life, that we would be fruitful, that as we go from here, we'd be people who live out and obey your law to love you with everything we've got and to love our neighbor like they're ourselves. Um, I pray that we would practice your presence, that we would talk to you, that we would hear you, that we would see you at work. I pray that we would be not ignorant of your purposes, that we would be aware of what you're doing, that we'd get on board and make disciples. Lord, I pray all these things not so that anybody would look at ABC or me particularly and say, look at what a great place that is to meet God but that they would look and see Jesus. That they would say, come see one who told me all things that ever I did. Isn't this the Christ? And yes, he is. And so Lord, I pray for glory and honor to his name and his name only today and for the rest of time. That your will would be done on earth just like it is right now in heaven. In heaven right now, every time he speaks, I imagine the heavenly host cries out, hallelujah! Hallelujah! He's speaking, let's listen. And so, Lord, I pray that that hallelujah would ring in my heart when I hear you speak. Thank you, God, for sending your son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Savior. And I pray in your holy, precious name. Amen.